Hi guys and welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. We are here for guest interview number 12 um, with Mr. Joe Jeffrey this time. I'm here with Luke as well. Luke, how are you? I'm very good, sir. Thank you. Luke's currently on a... Uh, just explain to the listeners what you're doing, Luke. Some silly, fasting, mimicking diet that I'm bitterly regretting. No, no, I'm basically just doing... It's after going on Brian Walsh's course on the weekend, I'm just testing out his kind of fasting mimicry diet where I pretty much eat 500 calories of nothing but veg every day. And it's uh, day two. I'm seeing uh, noises and hearing colours now. And uh, it's pretty powerful stuff, basically. No, it's quite good fun. And I think it'll be quite interesting to see how... Um, I'm basically doing before and after blood work with it because I want to see what effect it has. I'm just flagging mentally. So this this conversation about growth hormone, I'm probably going to like faint halfway through it. <laughs> That's why we're here. So Joe is going to talk us through the ins and outs of growth hormone, which we're both looking forward to. Joe, how are you? I'm really good, thank you, mate. Yeah, not too bad. On a rest day today, so hopefully kind of mentally primed to to talk about stuff as Callum said we're going to run over growth hormone but we were just discussing before the podcast like we're going to try and keep it away from like high level discussion and going down any rabbit holes and any nonsense that like you guys listening don't want to know I will say though before like I say anything on growth hormone if any of you guys want references on anything that I say or allude to or want to know anything deeper maybe if I mention an anabolic action of something involving growth hormone and you'd like to dig into the cell signaling pathways or some other nerdy stuff then just drop me a message and i can do that it's probably better to do it that way than like lay it all out here and have a three hour long podcast just to end up telling you a really simple protocol to use for losing fat for example you know it's probably better that we save the high level stuff for the specifics so so everything you're about to hear is not medical advice not intended to diagnose treat cure prevent any disease or illness or anything like that and always you know consult your medical practitioner coach nutritionist dietitian whatever before implementing any of the stuff you're about to hear definitely yeah <laughs> this is all hypothetical advice absolutely it's not even advice it's yeah. entertainment okay so let's dig into growth hormone then i want anybody listening to come away with a really clear concise knowledge of how to utilize growth hormone for the two primary goals that we have as physique athletes of either fat loss or gaining muscle. So we're not going to really cover growth hormone here for HRT protocols or, or wellness or, or anything like this. I think we, we might as well invest the time into the, the specifics of physique development. So firstly, why this is a good topic is um, growth hormone is likely the most misunderstood hormone in the physique world now I, I believe i primarily got interested in growth hormone although i love biochemistry of all kinds a while ago when i was reading like the fitness forum and i saw somebody say i think it was chester rockwell to be fair it said like um how to confuse a bodybuilder growth hormone is probably the most anabolic hormone in your body that won't add muscle and i thought what, what do you mean growth hormone won't add muscle you know and he, and he attached a study where um it was in humans using dosages up to something like 30 units a day and they didn't have a single gram of skeletal muscle tissue and i i remember that night really well because me <laughs> this is a bizarre anecdote here um me and my wife were taking my little sister to the zoo the next day and i read that just before i was going to bed but it kept playing for my mind i couldn't sleep so i just got up got on pubmed <laughs> <laughs> like literally rinsed growth hormone research all night and it became an obsession of mine i remember i, I actually had a nap on the grass in the picnic area in the zoo the next day <laughs> yeah, right. true story because because i couldn't i couldn't sleep i was so obsessed with this thing so hopefully i'll save you guys the hassle and give you some um, some more sort of uh basic points to take away here so i suppose let's dig into the more simpler of the two which is growth hormone and fat loss or lipolysis which is just a fancy word for like mobilizing and oxidizing free fatty acids causing fat loss so the main areas that we're going to cover here how much growth hormone how often and basically in what circumstances or environment you'd want to use them 
The first important thing to talk about that is contested is fasting and growth hormone. Literally, I was going to bring that up because there's going to be so many people that are like, yeah, fasting increases growth hormone. It's like, it's just, I mean, you're going to cover this now, but in that situation, it's just to fuel mobilization. Yeah. When, when we're fasted, as you know, endogenous secretion of growth hormone is increased. These elevated rates of growth hormone secretion cause metabolic changes. So, of course, we're talking about fat loss, so we're looking at what it does to the metabolism. So the first thing we see is physiologically what your body's going to try to do is provide glucose to peripheral tissues like the brain to be able to function without food. A term that you see in bodybuilding a lot is metabolic flexibility. I'm sure you guys talk about that a lot and utilize nutrient timing with clients for this very purpose. So just like with what you aim for in metabolic flexibility, you're going to see a shift to using fatty acids for fuel rather than dietary glucose. So mobilization of glucose from muscle tissue and hepatically, I'll probably say hepatically a lot through this podcast. For anybody that doesn't know, that basically means from the liver. Glucose will be muscleized from your skeletal muscle tissue and hepatically to keep your blood glucose stable and insulin secretion drops will prevent that mobilized glucose from getting back into the muscle or fat cells. Okay, so basically it's action as a survival hormone and why you see blood glucose raised when you take exogenous growth hormone. Growth hormone does also downregulate GLUT1, which will cause a transient state of insulin resistance. This insulin resistance, uh, note the word transiently, state of insulin resistance. Another common myth is that growth hormone itself causes insulin resistance. It's generally accepted in the research that long-term increases of hepatic IGF-1 can increase insulin rather sensitivity. But again, I'm getting off track already. So um, basically that state of insulin resistance is key to reducing glucose oxidation. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense as well. I mean, when you look at the studies where they measure like insulin sensitivity during sleep and when we're in deep sleep and we have the highest levels of endogenous growth hormone being released we get a massive well we are pretty much insulin resistant but it's it's like a temporary transient thing it's not like a permanent thing so yeah right yeah 100%. so if i asked you guys what mechanism does growth hormone work under to cause lipolysis well this is interesting because i i can't find the answer to this question but there's a, a few hypotheses that do make sense the one that makes the most sense to me is the increased expression of beta adrenergic receptors in fat cells and the catecholamine output that is basically caused by large, I say large, not large in terms of bodybuilding large, but in terms of secretion of growth hormone, we see this increased expression of beta adrenergic receptors in the fat cell. Um, so obviously that's not a, a direct mechanism and, and this is where we can start to say okay beta adrenergic what other drugs do bodybuilders use that anecdotally cause fat loss to potentiate when they use it with growth hormone i mean clenbuterol nicotine exogenous thyroid these drugs all work under that same pathway to increase catecholamine output in the beta adrenergic expression in fat cells so that's i feel that is a good hypothesis because we see it acting the anecdote and experience of people all the time how many times have you heard someone say when they start taking growth hormone and clen that it's a crazy fat loss stack as opposed to one or the other i've 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 seen one well, that some the, the impact that growth hormone can have on stimulating like hormone sensitive lipase and uh, yeah the, the hormone sensitive lipase is another strong hypothesis so i'd say between those two and the beta adrenergic receptor system are two that bounce around my head a lot. But I think ultimately we still don't know. All oh, right, that's pretty crazy that I still don't know. That makes me feel better because I'm, I just didn't have a definitive answer. <laughs> well, I don't, but maybe somebody listening does. And, and if you do, please get in touch. Like at no point of me being on this podcast talking about growth hormone do I want to sound like somebody that like thinks they know everything or, or anything like that. Like absolutely not. I try to learn as much as I can about this stuff every day. And I suppose by the admin of my head, there's probably a lot that I'll miss, especially trying to keep it more to a layman's terms. But yeah, if, if anybody listening, if there's anything that I misspeak or get wrong or anything, just, just like absolutely let me know. So now that you know the rest of what I'm going to say may or may not be true, let's continue. So this basically explains why for fat loss, 
it's a good idea to use growth hormone in a fasted state. So we can see from what we just spoke about, the presence of insulin, glucose, amino acids, or dietary fatty acids in the blood will blunt free fatty acid mobilization caused by growth hormone. The metabolic effects do still exist. They will just be severely reduced, if not in a fasted state. And therefore, less free fatty acids oxidized over a 24-hour period. When should you take growth hormone for fat loss? It's a good idea to take it when you're fasted. Again, probably why the anecdote of people taking it upon waking is so strong. Yeah. And with that, like, because I know people would administer it pre-bed and they'd have to take into account things like the post-absorptive state and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Is, is that something that you would make sure you finish like your last meal slightly earlier in that case? Yeah, so if, if a client of mine was utilising, let's say, I mean, we'll get into the specifics of dosing later, but let's say a client of mine wanted to use the dose in the PM I would recommend leaving at least four hours after that meal and dosing it again. There's some interesting ways, uh, rather reasons why you would want to put growth hormone before bed. Um, some literature suggests that there's a greater bioavailability and increase in growth hormone serum when using in the PM. I mean, Luke, you probably know more than me. That may be like an, an adaptive circadian rhythm thing. Very likely, given that that's when we are going to produce most of our endogenous growth hormone. Yeah. But if you shoot it before bed, you're not going to produce shit. Maybe more receptive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So these not nocturnal secretions of growth hormone. There's a lot of studies, and I believe the studies go as low as like 0.01 milligram per kilogram on those. And there's a greater bioavailability of that exogenous growth hormone. Nocturnal doses. So yeah, that is a setup that I like to use in clients that we can get into is like an AM PM, both fasted and then put in the feeding window in the day. There's various advantages and disadvantages to that yeah for sure for sure yeah keep questions like that coming because that's something that i would have i would have missed out so now we know kind of when we'd want to take it the question would be how much should i take so i suppose our our question is going to be like how much can i use like is there a ceiling dose for maximal fat loss so there is and this has been studied in humans so the dose is one and a half units per 100 kilograms of body weight. Bearing in mind in this research, this was IV. So if you are administering subcutaneously, it may be a little bit more. So if you weighed 100 kilograms, you'd be very safe to use two units and know that you're absolutely maximizing all of your fat loss capabilities within that growth hormones active window. So if your goal is fat loss and you're taking five units, you're, you're wasting probably quite a bit of money given the price of growth hormone. I think that's the first thing people may hear and disagree with. But again, if anybody wants the references and literature to support any statements that I make here, uh, just ask me and I'll, I'll pick it over. Yes, yeah, so as I said, this is IV, so sub-Q may be a good idea. Again, on sub-Q, GH serum does stay risen for a little longer than intramuscularly. And again, for fat loss, I mean, I wouldn't really advise anybody use IV, but... Of course, that would be, in air quotes, optimal way to administer. A little bit inconvenient. So sub-Q would probably be my recommended route of administration here. The greater rise in the GH serum. Now, when it comes to when we discuss hypertrophy, there'll be an interesting difference there because there may be a reason why you don't want higher growth hormone serum or endocrine IGF-1 in this case to be higher, but we'll get into that later. There is some data on what we spoke about earlier, that adding growth hormone with other catecholamine-stimulating drugs, uh, I believe one of the papers was on dexamethasone, increases the lipolytic effect of growth hormone alone. So again, we can kind of hypothesize from that, that it's not really a stretch to look at the lipolytic synergy between growth hormone and beta-adrenergic agonists like clenbuterol and nicotine. Okay, so we spoke a little bit about Roots of administration. So we can talk a bit more pharmacokinetics and dynamics here. If we wanted, for whatever reason, to mimic our endogenous growth hormone secretion, you'd be looking at an IV shot of growth hormone, maybe every two, two and a half, three hours. So obviously, we don't really want to go IV. We're left with sub Q or IM to choose from. The route that you're going to like decide to take is going to change depending on the pharmacokinetics of growth hormone itself. In the data. In some males using super high doses of growth hormone, I can't remember if we spoke about this when we were recording or when we were off, but it was around 25 units shot intramuscularly. It had 
a much higher peak of growth hormone in the blood. However, when that dose was used subcutaneously, the growth hormone serum levels were elevated for a longer time. Um, so there may be an advantage for that longer growth hormone serum in terms of fat, free fatty acid mobilization, although to be honest, I doubt it. Intramuscularly or sub it probably doesn't matter. Now, this study was cool because it showed the, the free fatty acid mobilization rates. So now we're talking, okay, how long should I remain fasted for? Is it a case that I just shoot it and then I can eat my breakfast? Or do I need to remain fasted? Ideally, for fat loss, we want mobilization to be increased for as long as possible, right? So we can see that the mobilization of growth hormone, sorry, the free fatty acid mobilization caused by growth hormone peaks at about two and a half hours and very gradually comes down from there. I'd probably tend to recommend at least three hours of abstaining from anything that's going to increase insulin amino acids, free fatty acids, glucose in the blood. So it's a pretty safe idea just to drink water in that time. Really, we can sum up fat loss here. It's super simple. So you grow from home fasted, remain fasted for at least three hours, inject it however is most convenient for you. Dose maybe around two units. Uh, oh, an interesting point that I didn't mention is that anabolic steroids do also increase beta adrenergic receptor expression so there's a stronger synergy there and I, I always think it's a good idea to build synergies on lower relative dosages of all drugs rather than just nailing higher dosages of one personally i don't know if you guys would agree no, I would. Uh, other other points to sum up <clears throat> oh yep you could add another dose before bed we did speak about the greater bioavailability of growth hormone at night um other synergies super physiological dosages of exogenous thyroid do increase mRNA expression of beta adrenergic receptors. So again, another synergy. Something that I didn't mention, but it's probably obvious, perform some non-glucose intensive activity during your fasted window to greater increase the rates of free fatty acids mobilized. Yeah. So this is where like fasting, uh, fasted cardio actually does have a benefit. Exactly. Yeah. Because I spoke about this with Austin over on my podcast the other day. It's like, because you see the meme, like if your coach has you doing fasted cardio, you're an idiot. He's an idiot, or, or she is an idiot. I'm trying to be politically correct. Not necessarily true because, yes, there are conditions that fasted cardio is applicable if you're using any drugs that accelerate free fatty acid mobilization, growth hormone, your bean, nicotine. <laughs> so there you go. It might not be an idiot. But if you're not using those things, then that's growth hormone and fat loss really summed up. It's quite a simple one as compared to, um, to hypertrophy. Do you guys have any questions on that? Or, or was that kind of no, I think it's pretty straightforward? terms of know your windows know that you don't need to use too much know how long it actually worked for yeah yeah we're talking purely fat loss based two units am and pm fasted works really nice or just two units in the morning followed by a fast if it's inconvenient later in the day mm. uh it's worth mentioning i think that the the free fatty acid mobilization rates of growth hormone are played down when people say it's just an expensive fat burn or it doesn't do much like it really does, the mobilization rates are huge. When you look at the data, if you use it correctly, I think that's the key. Not many people are following these specific guidelines and doing it properly. And if you did, the fat loss effects are huge. Uh, I suppose it goes without saying that you need to be in an overall energy deficit to oxidize those free fatty acids that you have mobilized. Uh, so don't think that you're gonna take growth hormone. I mean, you hear it all the time. Yeah, I can eat what I want on growth hormone and get leaner. It, it just doesn't doesn't work like that. From a biochemical standpoint, the interaction between, the, the possible interaction between growth hormone and hormone-intensive lipase, HSL, mm -hmm. I wonder why, whether there's like an astounding amount of people, it seems, that are actually carnitine deficient, so maybe supplementing with carnitine could be not a bad way, just given that carnitine's going to be key in synthesizing the enzyme required to actually like get fat into the mitochondria yeah. yeah i've never i've never actually thought about possible carnitine i don't i don't know about injectable maybe but just like even people just during their feeding windows making sure they're they're eating enough red meat and supplementing with carnitine if necessary it might work might be something to add in yeah I do have some notes on hormone sensitive lipase expression in fat cells uh, with growth hormone under, I've got a folder called mechanisms of possible growth hormone lipolysis. Let me see what I've got here. Yes. So some research shows that growth hormone reduces lipoprotein lipase and stimulate hormone sensitive lipase. And given that it 
hormone sensitive lipase is typically blunted by insulin mm -hmm. like insulin kind of antagonist effect of growth hormone could, is that potential that is the mechanism isn't it driving insulin down stimulating hormone sensitive lipase that way yes exactly being an antagonist so there was some research that came out in 2003. It's called lipolysis, more than just a lipase. If you guys are happy with that, we can move on to, to hypertrophy, which is the, the big hitter. Way more complicated than phallos, but I'm going to try and make it super simple. But I'm going to try and explain the mechanisms behind why. Please be vocal with me here and slow me down and get me to explain things because it is mega complicated, but I'm going to try. I'm going to... Let's do it. I'm going to try. So... Can't talk about skeletal muscle hypertrophy. When I say skeletal muscle as well, if we're talking really lame and stuff, like skeletal muscle is like the muscle that you can see, right? <laughs> so we're going to be talking about anabolism, right? Yeah. But growth hormone is very anabolic. I will say from the outset, it will not add a single gram of skeletal muscle tissue to you. So the issue and the confusion of what this comes from is people reading papers, I believe, on growth hormone that where they see that it increases lean body mass. So can you see any problems with, with that, guys? No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There's so like lean body mass. You can literally, um, and you, we see this, like what goes up with growth hormone, water retention, water retention would be classed as lean body mass. Yeah, so it's more than muscle tissue. It's like intra and extracellular fluid retention, bone mass. And when you dig deeper into further studies that do actually look at muscle tissue, you see zero increase even on like huge dosages um another thing that i'll get out of the way now is hyperplasia i'm sure you guys have seen growth hormone causes hyperplasia in my opinion this is like speculative there's no good evidence in humans that hyperplasia even yeah. exists outside of what occurs during the pregnancy phase let alone with a specific drug like growth hormone so, I I mean, is it fat fat cells are like the only things that hyperplasia? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Lee. You're right. I should have said muscle cell hyperplasia there. Yeah, well, no, but that's the thing. Like people are like, ah, like, like we'll clarify. M like yeah. muscle, skeletal muscle hyperplasia just doesn't really. And this is there'd be people out there. They'd be like, what? You know, some big name has spoken about this, and I've seen the the research was done in, in uh, rats, wasn't it? Something, like they, they found it in in an animal, a non-human animal. I believe the study you're talking about was a quail. There we go. So hanging a wing with was it five times its body weight over forty-eight hours or something? But it's true. So like people, you know, always read the research because I think the title of that study was something pretty um, misleading. I think I think that study is almost what's responsible for the trend in loading stretches. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love people like Dante and Dr. Scott, and they're fans of them. I'm not well read enough on the research to know if it has any effect beyond just like additional eccentric volume. But the only like research I've seen on loads of stretching was on a quail, as we said. So it worked for the quail. The quail got jacked. <laughs> it had one huge wing. Yeah. You know, that would be good like to do to maybe another land bird mammal, like a chicken. Massive chicken wing. Talking about going off topic, right? <laughs> so, I mean, what's like the number one thing in bodybuilding that's spoken about when we talk about anabolism? It's, it's probably protein synthesis, right? So growth hormone absolutely increases protein synthesis. Uh, the issue being systemic or whole body protein synthesis. Some research suggests it reduces protein breakdown. I don't think we have enough um, to really say for sure. And without going into like all of the downstream effects, because we said we were going to avoid cell signaling pathways here. So beyond the growth hormone receptor down along downstream of cell signaling pathways growth hormone activates mTOR signaling we all know what mTOR signaling is clearly we are more interested in muscle protein synthesis than whole body protein synthesis and it does not say for those that don't know what mTOR is mTOR is basically the like signaling signaling pathway in the body that kind of mediates uh, hypertrophy that's um like people looking to drive hypertrophy you're, you're looking and like um animalism in general so it's not the it's not the healthiest thing to drive all the time which is why getting jacked isn't that healthy um getting supremely jacked isn't that healthy i should add mTOR is basically the guy you have to go after there and all the downstream pathways what do you think the mTOR isoform regulation on that quail was insane 
extreme. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, this is why we, we should implement some level of fasting, I suppose, for, for AMA activation. Yeah, but then, I mean, this thing of like balancing those two pathways, people look at mTOR as bad, mTOR has benefits, AMPK has benefits, wholly driving one or the other is not a good thing. Exactly. I mean, you see, I mean, you guys have probably seen the argument with metformin. Oh, it activates AMPK. I'm not taking that. But mm. what we take into account is that there's multiple isoforms of AMPK. And the isoforms that are affected by metformin use have, have nothing to do with hypertrophy. Mm. Um, which, I mean, how many studies have we got in metformin increasing, like augmenting strength in the elderly? It's, it's non, nonsensical. It's the thing of like, you know, people take all this stuff completely out of context and it, it's that uh, mTOR itself yes it drives cell proliferation and like whole like systemically basically but the you know, like every tissue if you activate mTOR that's what happens so cancer and all that stuff and people wrongly assume that oh my god if I what if if we drive mTOR we're going to get cancer like once you once you have cancer it's been found that overly stimulating MPK actually leads to faster faster cancer cell growth so it's wow. like people flip the other switch and like oh my god it's like you know that it's um it's not as simple and black and white as people make it and also when people say you know they're training and they're stimulating mTOR any form of activity that leads to a, a decrease in available intracellular energy which is resistance training activates AMPK it's the it's like the the like post-training results like the signals you stimulate as a result of like muscle damage and metabolic stress that drives mTOR but the actual training itself is AMPK so when people, when people go oh like if I go and do post-workout cardio I'm going to be driving AMPK um no you're not you're, you're you've already driven AMPK you may be inhibiting mTOR signaling to some degree but you've already driven it anyway. right. yeah but this is it's not off topic because this is exactly what we're talking about because look we've got this massive mTOR simulation but no muscle hypertrophy mm. What's going on? And, and I may add that this was in dosages, I believe up to 0.2 units per kilogram of body weight. So for me, that would be 23 units of growth hormone a day would add zero grams of muscle to my body. Rinsey banks out there. I'll buy the cheap farmer, the, the cheap Chinese generic, mate. Don't worry about me. 10p a unit. <laughs> this actually works out. Was it? It's, it's equally dosed, isn't it? Or slightly pure dose. I don't really use that. It's not temp. I think you can get a good generic now if you buy in bulk for like 80p per unit. But we'll get into HPLC testing at some point um, because that's something I took great interest in and invested a lot of because I did have a private group on, on Facebook, Optimal Physique Development. It got removed for breaking the rules of Facebook for some reason. But I had a HPLC thread in there where I spent quite a bit of money. I'm not trying to like boast here, but I'm saying like I spent money getting various anabolic labs and various generic gh brands hplc tested the purity and dosing to almost as like a harm reduction for people that wanted to have a look at this thread or oh, i was thinking about buying x you know compound Let, let's check it out as, as joe tested it and and then it was awesome because loads of people in the group were sending stuff off for testing and we we collated this awesome list but yeah we started to see what an interesting trend in in growth hormone types so i'll get into that later because there are some it's not as simple as testing anabolics when you test growth hormone because there can be molecular mutations that can cause issues. Um, but I'll try not to get too deep on that. Mm. We'll come to that anyway. Right, so we're talking about protein synthesis. Mm. Uh, basically, my last point on that would be that there is data on individuals that are in hypocaloric, so they're in a deficit, that they're in a hypocaloric condition, or that they're fasting, if they use growth hormone, their rate of muscle protein breakdown does decrease by mechanism of reducing amino acid oxidation and increasing systemic protein synthesis. So for dieting, great. For hypertrophy, it's not looking good. What could be the next thing we speak about now? Um, because it's worth talking about different types of AAS use for hypertrophy with growth hormone and the synergies and what relative things you think about. I think something worth getting out of the way would be covering IGF-1. Right, so what is IGF-1? Um, it means insulin growth factor. Growth hormone increases it, levels of it. Serum IGF-1. What's important is that we know two different kinds of IGF-1 here. First being endocrine IGF-1, or systemic if you want to call it that, whole body, whatever. And this is what's hepatically 
released, okay? So from the liver. Two, localized IGF-1 that you can find within cells. What we're interested in is localized IGF-1, or you call it autocrine or paracrine IGF-1, um, but don't worry about that, in the muscle cell. So there is no evidence at all that endocrine IGF-1 increases skeletal muscle hypertrophy. So I'll just say that again, it's super important. There's no evidence that these systemic levels of hepatic IGF-1 contribute to hypertrophy at all. However, localized there is. When you look at endocrine IGF-1, that's where you find, I mean, this is where I think about as we go forward, you find most of the side effects that are associated with growth hormone. And you also see negative feedback regulation on localized IGF-1, which is very interesting. So essentially what you can see in some data is the higher that people's hepatic IGF-1 goes, you see reductions in some cases in, in their localized IGF-1 levels. So instantly we should be thinking, okay, I don't really want super high endocrine IGF-1 because I don't want all the side effects that come with that. And, and I don't want to reduce the only IGF-1 that could be caused in hypertrophy. Really what we're thinking is at this level going forward, how do we keep endocrine IGF-1 as low as possible while simultaneously increasing these localized levels as much as possible? Um, so talking about what is IGF-1, I'll just quickly cover it. Like insulin growth factors, they're a family of growth hormone dependent peptides. You find IGF-1, IGF-2, insulin is technically in the IGF family and, and so on. So they're called insulin-like um, due to the similarity in the pathways that they both share. Um, and they're, they're very similar in molecular structure as well. Um, because they're so similar, um, cross-binding does happen between peptides, but albeit with like a lower binding affinity. So a good example would be like IGF-1 has the highest binding affinity to the IGF-1 receptor, but it has less to the insulin receptor and vice versa. Mm. Right? In actual blood circulation, IGF, exists mostly as IGF-BP, IGF binding proteins. Um, it's, it's also worth noting here, this is why I wouldn't recommend anybody use exogenous IGF, like Incrolex, for example, because that's purely IGF with no IGF binding proteins. If you inject that, you have a super physiological dose of IGF-1, you have no binding proteins available for it to attach to, it will just be excreted and wasted. There are some newer formulations, I think it's called IPLEX, that actually mix IGF-1 and IGF-BP3, I think is the binding protein they use. There are some binding proteins actually that reduce effectiveness of IGF that I, might, I may or may not get into. But um, yeah, things like IPLEX may have efficacy, but at the end of the day, when you do the calculations up between something like these IGF mixes and growth hormone use properly with anabolics and insulin, for example. Yeah. But just like we went over the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of growth hormone for fat loss, probably a good idea that we cover it for hypertrophy mm. in terms of IGF-1. Yeah, I was going to say, because it seems like IGF-1 is the key player. And it, I mean, is it right that IGF-1 gets touted as like potentially the most anabolic thing in the human body? They say, yeah, I mean, you hear all sorts. You hear insulin is the most anabolic hormone. I don't know how they're basing these anabolic ratings, but... I just think it's, it's important to remember that anabolism doesn't equal muscle growth. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's probably largely unimportant that we like scrutinize what has a higher anabolic rating. I mean, much like the anabolic androgenic ratios of steroids, like they just never, yeah, it, it looks cool on paper, but it just doesn't actually make sense. <clears throat> Let's talk about IGF. So, hopefully, I'm going to make this a clearer picture for you guys. So, the liver is the primary target of growth hormone and it's really the, the chief, the boss of IGF output yeah. or endocrine IGF output. So it's kind of important to begin considering as we look at dosing pro protocols, we see endocrine levels of IGF-1 increase rapidly when using large doses of growth hormone. Got that, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like sometimes I'm just like throwing words out and I think, did that make sense what I just said? <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just fascinated basically kicks out a shitload of IGF-1 if you're using their large bolus dose of growth hormone. So now keep in, your back of the, keep in the back of your mind that bolus dose and growth hormone like every other day is a common thing in bodybuilding for the reason that it kicks up serum IGF-1 a lot. And, and then automatically people will say, okay, that's the best. Now, the, the question that I would ask those people is, do those serum IGF-1 increases lead to 
higher localized IGF-1 also? Or is it primarily just hepatic IGF-1? And we already know that that has a negative feedback regulation on localized IGF-1, in which case it would be at your detriment to do that. So like we were talking about fat loss, is there a ceiling dose? Now, there does appear to be a ceiling dose of endocrine IGF-1. There's some research on people that use it around 20 to 30 units a day. And even that high, it settled around, I think it was like 700 milligram per deciliter. You could, you could reach those levels with less. And this is bolus dosing. Okay, So there does appear to be a ceiling dose. Exactly where it exists is going to be down to your biological inter-individuality. So if for whatever reason you, you believe that this endocrine IGF-1 if increasing this saturation point will bring about no benefit. That's only if you believe that to be the case. And I will say, no, I, I do not believe that to be the case. And hopefully I will, I will explain why. Localized IGF-1 does also increase when you inject growth hormone. But again, like, is there a ceiling dose? And if this really is the key for mediating hypertrophy, where does that ceiling dose exist? There are some human trials on this and the amount of growth hormone that max, maximally stimulates IGF-1 mRNA expression in muscle tissue is around three nanograms per milliliter, which is probably, if I was going to do some crazy maths over a 24-hour period, six to eight units. Uh, and, and you'll see why I said over 28, a 24-hour period here, because we're going to have to get into pulsatile dosing patterns and why. This is why I said the hypertrophy side is a bit of a head fuck. Yeah, we can hypothesize over a full day this will be around eight units at the top end. Yeah. So we were talking about administration worth pointing out here this blew my mind when i found this out yeah and this shows how nerdy i am because i remember literally shaking with excitement when i read this so there there are there is a animal trial was tracking this localized mrna igf1 expression in in muscle tissue and the localized administration of growth hormone actually caused muscle growth in that area worth saying like we were talking about the quail no human data Mm. I will say I have trialed this with clients and seen a very noticeable, I've trialed this in clients with the medial delt and both bicep heads and localized intramuscular injections did cause a slight enhancement effect. Whether that was from inflammation, I don't know. The trials also showed a consistently greater expression of localized IGF-1 within the injected tissues. But even if there isn't a slight enhancement like benefit, we are still getting more localized IGF-1 within those injected tissues areas that will result in localized hypertrophy anyway. Okay. Right. So it may just be a safe bet if it's not an inconvenience to you to shoot it in weak body parts. But the, um, but no, that is pretty fascinating, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah. And this, this animal trial is another nod towards the localized IGF-1 really being the mediator of hypertrophy that we're talking about here. Mm. If they're seeing localized IGF-1 increase in these sites and muscle growth, is that not the mediator and it wasn't the endocrine IGF-1 secretion that they're getting from the liver? Just another you know, a, a hypothesis here that what is what suggests to me that that's a dosing strategy or rather a nod towards the sort of type of IGF-1 we'd be looking to increase. So when we're talking about dosing frequency, in research we see that pulsatile administration, as compared to constant infusion, maximally stimulates localized IGF-1 expression in skeletal muscle tissue. And that same pulsatile administration also demonstrated lower systemic IGF-1 as compared to constant infusion. But this just so happens to mimic like endogenous secre secretory? Is that a word? Secretatory? Secretion patterns? So now we're seeing, we're answering the exact question that we asked earlier. How can we increase localized IGF-1 whilst minimizing endocrine IGF-1? Well, there you go. Pulsatile dosing. Another nod away from the large bolus dosing protocols. So this is kind of where things start to make sense, start to tie up. There'll be so many people listening to this that are like, oh, for fuck's sake, I've been wasting all my money. But there's a lot of people listening to this also thinking he's talking shit. He's an idiot. Yeah. See, it's pretty, re, uh, pretty robust, this information. Well, we can only do the best that we can with the research that we have available to us. And in, and in the, in the performance-enhancing drug world, it's difficult because the, it's often we're just looking for correlations between studies. Like, like for most of the research I've read, it's been for like growth hormone deficient individuals. Mm. And, and it, it just doesn't really hold a ton of context. So you have to read between the lines of multiple mm. pieces of research and such. But um. I mean, there are people, I mean, I know one person that's probably listening to this that loves the every other day 
protocol. Mm. You thinking he's an idiot because he calls me an idiot all the time. I was talking about growth hormone earlier with one of my with with Jacques actually we had a mentoring call with him and we were talking about we were looking into some research right now for GPC and there was one where they found you know increased um, growth hormone levels and then you looked at the methods methodology of the study and they did like a extended overnight fast and then um, did, there was a bunch of conditions that they used in the in the actual methods that was just not at all applicable to how people actually train and live their lives and it, just, it was like you know people look at the conclusion they're like oh great and then you look at how they did it you're like no one's ever going to be able to replicate that unless they're weird yeah and that's so yeah, as is the case with most studies like who's shooting 24 units of growth in one shot so the question that kind of comes to my mind there, there is right okay we know that it's probably a good idea to shoot growth hormone impulses maybe small doses throughout the day and we also know probably intramuscular is a good idea but then I think, is there any desensitization? So growth hormone pathways are open to desensitization, very strong desensitization. So after exposure to growth hormone, muscle cells are shown to not respond to new growth hormone doses at all. And I think it's up to like eight hours. And even when they dose growth hormone five hours apart, the cells were like 90% unresponsive. We can't even dose it in a pulsatile fashion anyway because it's getting a little less effective every time. Almost to the point of being non-responsive after a single administration. Only thing that I've seen that reverses this desensitization, and it makes sense when you consider how they work on an axis, is insulin. So insulin does completely reverse growth hormone desensitization. Now, before someone calls me out on the PM and AM dosing of growth hormone that we spoke about in the fat loss part, this is desensitization to mRNA expression of localized RGF1. Nothing to do with free fatty acid mobilization. Don't worry, it does not apply to it. Now, when I say insulin, I don't necessarily mean you have to inject it exogenously. So even an endogenous secretion of insulin is good. It will resensitize you and get you ready for the next dose. So if you put a meal in between your growth hormone dosings or you use exogenous insulin, it's at least a good idea. Now, let's tie in an anecdote that you probably hear all the time. Lantus use and growth hormone two things we can think about here one of them i won't really get into is that the igf1 binding affinity of lantus is the largest of all insulins available all insulin analogs something crazy in cell line research like hundreds of times higher binding affinity to igf1 than human log it's i say it's a 24-hour insulin it has a, a tail off but it, for all intents purposes here it's a 24-hour insulin all right your growth hormone receptors are constantly in a state of maximum sensitization. If you're using higher dosages of growth hormone, Lantus works really well. If not, I mean like any other insulin analog or a meal is at least a good idea based on this research, yeah. if it is in fact true. But we can talk a little bit more. We just simply won't have the time to get into insulin synergies with growth hormone in this podcast because they are extremely complicated. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll save that for part two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, something worth mentioning though, what plays the biggest role is anabolic androgenic steroids with growth hormone. So we all know, are like anabolic androgenic steroids, I will refer to here on as steroids. So we know that steroids add skeletal muscle tissue. Like in the basin research, even people who did nothing added muscle tissue. People that didn't train added muscle tissue when using steroids. Yeah. Interesting to note here. In studies where people are given anabolics that are growth hormone and IGF deficient, they also add muscle tissue. So we know from that, steroids possess some non-IGF mediated hypertrophy pathways, right? Mm. But because the hypertrophy is accentuated, there must be some IGF mediated pathways. So we could go into them. As I said, no data on growth hormone adding muscle tissue when used alone. So then the question for me straight away came is, but is there data on adding muscle tissue using anabolics and growth hormone? Like, is there an additive effect? Because yes, there's data with anabolics adding muscle tissue, but if you put growth hormone into the equation, does it add more muscle tissue considering that it adds none when used alone? Uh, yes, there is. Adding growth hormone to anabolics does provide an, an additive effect to hypertrophy, fat loss and performance in multiple trials interestingly in both males and females i just think this just highlights i'm going to speak about this in our seminar 
that calories in, calories out matters, obviously. But when you get into the realm of like fucking around with your physiology and manipulating hormones like this, it's quite clear that you can take advantage of some pretty powerful things that don't necessarily require calories in, calories out. Obviously, it was the underlying thing you want to do, but when you can pin someone with testosterone and watch them build muscle about how to do a damn thing, yeah, you know that there's something. Yeah, the, the hormonal axes are pretty powerful. We just don't have access to that as natties. Yeah. So, I take all of this stuff and train, I still don't add any muscle. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, I mean, I mentioned females there. It's probably worth saying now. Sorry, girls who are listening, but as is often the case with physique-based ventures, you really have the short end of the stick here. Like IGF response in females is awful. I wouldn't bother. Like it's crap. The free fatty acid mobilization, like fat loss again, this works perfectly. I mean, like one unit in a woman, that's perfect. I, like growth from over hypertrophy in females, yeah, the, the IGF response is far, far lower than men. Well, so women just use it for anti-aging at the moment, it seems. Yeah, I mean, there is some efficacy in that, and there's some reasons why that wouldn't be the case. But again, another one for another another podcast. So, so we're in this situation now where we see that anabolics add muscle tissue alone, growth hormone doesn't, but when combined together. They add more. So it's like, what? That doesn't make any sense, right? In trials using testosterone, interestingly, there is a, like, a dose-response relationship to serum IGF-1 levels. Higher doses increase it. And actually being hypogonadal, you see a decrease in serum IGF-1. Um, now, this, this point here is like mega important. Like seriously important point here is that non-aromatizing steroids do not produce the same stimulatory effect on the GH IGF axes. Anybody using higher doses of growth hormone that wants to see some hypertrophy, you need a strong estrogenic component of your stack. This is one reason why I really don't use aromatase inhibitors in anybody. You don't want to limit estrogen. If you have estrogenic side effects with your stack, modulate the stack design, preferably to not bring down your serum estrogen, but to rather alter your levels of androgens to estrogens in blood. I mean, this is how a lot of HRT clinics are doing it now, using non-aromatizing androgens with very little deleterious health effect as compared to aromatase inhibitors alongside doses of testosterone. Um, and just remember that your estrogen doesn't have to be in the physiological range if your testosterone is super physiological. That makes no sense. Mm. It works in a ratio, as is the case with breast cancer treatment. That's why they use things like androgens to mediate the proliferation of estrogen. Mm. So don't use an AI. Serms, even worse. So aromatase isn't expressed hepatically, so it's not going to affect the growth hormone action at the liver, but a serm would. So serms just fucking you up all over the place. So tamoxifen, stuff like that, just don't, don't use it. There's no, I don't know why anyone, like, I feel like I'm going to offend you too if you've got clients that use it. <laughs> AIs now. But like, I'll just speak personally, I don't see any reason why anybody would when we know what we know about androgen to estrogen ratios and the deleterious effect of these ancillary compounds and the negative feedback on growth and lipolysis of estrogen. Like if anything, you'd want super physiological levels of estrogen, especially if using growth hormone. I think people underplay, we meant, I mentioned this on the podcast with Dean, that there's so many pretty key actions to estrogen that people never really take into account. I think the only thing, I mean, would you not consider if someone was like presenting with things like gyno and stuff like that, that putting a sermon to help manage that? Maybe transiently whilst correcting the stack design. Yeah. So if, if I had to, I, I, I could say, okay, let's, let, let's say they're running 500 milligrams of testosterone. I could say something as simple as that's change that to 400 testosterone, 200 primo or Masteron, and then let's run the Tamoxifen for 14 days and, and then we'll see if that's corrected the issue. As long as we've caught it before it's become actually granular tissue. Yeah. In which case, I'll probably more likely pull the client back down to TRT, let them stabilize and then try a new stack design with a, a greater androgenic component rather than fucking not adjusting it and possibly making it worse. Um, when you, you, you're gonna need surgery at that point anyway. So on this with like testosterone increasing and Dr. and IGF-1 and speaking about AIs, 
uh, as in AI, like aromatase not being expressed hepatically. So we could see what aromatase activity does um, to endocrine IGF-1, as it's not, um, as aromatase isn't expressed in the liver, as we spoke about. So like Luke, um, actually last week we spoke about something that could might be worth mentioning here. And I'll test you because I spent about an hour writing that fucking WhatsApp message. So we spoke about nandrolone's conversion pathways to estrogen. Oh yeah, that was crazy. So in the research, interestingly, nandrolone has basically nil effect on endocrine IGF-1 levels. Mm. Okay, so, so why, why would that be? Because nandrolone is estrogenic, testosterone is estrogenic. Estrone is a big metabolite of nandrolone, yes, but the primary reason why is because like I just spoke about, um, aromatase isn't expressed in the liver. Nandrolone does not convert to estrogen via the aromatase enzyme. That's the one. Right. So that might be something that we're thinking about here. We're thinking, okay, nandrolone doesn't increase endocrine IGF-1, but has the same effect on localized IGF-1 as testosterone. Maybe we could use that because we don't want the endocrine IGF-1. Right? Just a thought. Oh, so enter trend. <laughs> well, trend, trend like nandrolone is the same. It doesn't increase um, the, this endocrine IGF-1, but does largely increase localized IGF-1. There's other like nutrient partitioning, like glucose tolerance um, synergies with trembolone and growth hormone that are, are worth mentioning at some point. That's more high level. But the issue with trembolone is the lack of the estrogenic component. If you're going to use trembolone in a stack design uh, that you are basing around growth hormone, uh, be sure to have a strong estrogenic component. So on testosterone, we're talking about testosterone. So synergies with growth hormone, why is there an additive effect? So testosterone increases total growth hormone receptors. Actual growth hormone receptors are expressed in some pretty low amounts in skeletal muscle tissue, but with like, the super physiological dosages of growth hormone a bodybuilding would use, Having more available growth hormone receptors, to me, sounds like a good idea. More combined, therefore, you can use more. So on the flip side of that, growth hormone increases androgen receptor density. So more anabolics can be used to greater effect with growth hormone. So the synergies on both sides. What the most important synergy is, is what we spoke about firstly, which is anabolics actually potently increasing mRNA expression of localized IGF-1 in skeletal muscle tissue. So therefore, superphysiological dosages of anabolics are going to create an environment intramuscularly to cater for the huge levels of IGF-1 from our growth hormone use. There's also some research showing that IGF binding proteins that inhibit IGF-1, I believe we touched on that earlier, they decreased with superphysiological dosages of anabolics. So the synergies just keep rolling in, really. I know I keep saying testosterone, but as we've spoken about, just bear in mind, taking anabolics that don't convert to estrogen, like trend, is not a good idea without estrogen. We've said that. And, and again, a big nod towards estrogen being essential for stimulating the growth hormone and IGF axes. So without getting too deep into like minutia here, but there's a signaling pathway that plays a huge role in muscle tissue regulation. It's the JAK-STAT pathway. JAK slash STAT pathway. And this has a direct relationship to IGF-1 expression in skeletal muscle. So it stands to reason that we want to make sure this pathway is fully sensitized to maximize hypertrophy potential with androgens and growth hormone. But I'll give you like a basics, basics, because it comes down a lot with amino acid pooling and transport rates and whatnot. That's some complicated shit. Synergy of insulin, it's going to increase the total number of growth hormone receptors. Again, synergies all round. Uh, it enhances growth hormone induced activation of multiple pathways like the jack stat that we were talking about that are responsible for growth. Insulin can also be used to control blood glucose increase from growth hormone. So growth hormone's action as a survival hormone is, of course, as we spoke about in the beginning of this podcast, in the fat loss section, that it does increase blood glucose levels. Some people say to levels of like pre-diabetic, maybe in human dosages, but yep, you could use a basal dose of an insulin to pull that down. Although bear in mind that is not correcting actual cellular insulin resistance. It's just sort of synthetically improving your nutrient partitioning. I mean, something that just popped into my head, we're not going to talk about GHRPs or GHRH stimulating peptides here, but I will say just like, please don't use MK677. It's got the worst blood glucose effect out of any growth hormone secretagog. They're awful. It completely defeats the point of using it. Um, I mean, people use it for appetite, but then 
their, their glucose jumps up 20 milligrams and their nutrient partition is worse and then they eat more and then they just gain body fat. What's the point? And what we know about hypertrophy, what's it going to really do? I mean, what's the maximum autocrine? Because it's got such a long half-life, mm. how, how are we dosing that for it to be pulsatile? We're not. Mm. Hypermorelin with a mod GRF129 can work, but again, compared to exogenous growth hormone, is a drop in the ocean. And the timing is very difficult for hypertrophy. I think they are, they are better utilized for fat loss effects. Yeah, so basically, we could sum up this stuff here. Put it in a, in a basic term, growth hormone hypertrophy. Using growth hormone on its own won't do anything for muscle growth, so don't bother. There was someone in a Facebook group the other day that was saying, you know, oh, I just use growth hormone. Don't. You are completely wasting your money. Mm. Use anabolic and ideally ensure a higher estrogenic environment, if possible. Well, so, so we're talking about anecdote. Like, why do people run higher tests in the off-season with growth hormone and see great gains? And, you know, why? Why did that ever come about? Because I, and why do people always say it used to be on the GH15? I don't know if you guys are on their forum all the time. How come I can run so much test on growth hormone without getting bluefy and without getting fat? Well, look at the huge synergies on stimulating the, the GHRGF axes that estrogen actually has. Mm. That's why. Prioritize estrogen. Um, again, microdosial growth hormone, if you do subscribe to my hypotheses of autocrine, paracrine, IGF-1 being the main regulator of skeletal muscle hypertrophy in the family of IGFs, mm. I'm pretty certain on that statement. So microdosial growth hormone daily, Anything between one to three units per dose is a good consideration, up to eight units a day. I will say that that amount will exponentially increase with the introduction of insulin, as will the side effects, though, like the carpal tunnel and soft tissue edema and whatnot. So that doesn't mean use more growth hormone because you could be putting yourself in side effect C. But with anabolics alone, eight units. On routes of administration, consider intramuscular use. You know, it might have benefit it might not but what's the difference ensure uh, like an insulin bolus in between dosages whether endogenous or exogenous the timing of these i mean you see it all the time you know take it 90 minutes before the workout take it it really is unimportant it's more important that, you, that it's just pulsatile throughout the day um localized igf1 elevations last for days once peaked it literally doesn't matter when you dose it I, uh, apart from the fact that you want to spread it out in my opinion and also Stay away from AIs, CERMs, and stay away from exogenous thyroid, which is something that we probably should have covered. Why would you not want to use exogenous thyroid? Let me find the question. Should we run exogenous thyroid with growth hormone? Simple question. Um, so growth hormone enhances peripheral deiodination of T4 to T3. And I'm sure you guys know this, but this basically means activating the T4 to T3 conversion. There's also an element in that mechanism of... Um, like degradation of T4 and T3 into like inactive molecules. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're talking about here is like T4 to T3 conversion, right? Because we always hear that you should be supplementing exogenous thyroid with growth hormone. So it would stand to reason that we would supplement to ameliorate this effect, right? That's, that should be, that's a blanket term, like why everyone should use T4 or T3 with growth hormone. Um, I mean, the issue is here that there, there are long-term studies on this and, um, and this levels out with time. So there's no need. It's transient. Also, worth mentioning here is that manipulating the thyroidal axis to put you in a hyper or hypo thyroid state reduces serum IGF-1, including localized IGF-1. I mean, not even to mention being hyperthyroid means being catabolic by nature of increasing muscle protein breakdown beyond the muscle protein synthesis that it provides. Uh, what else does it do? Hyperthyroidism, you also see greater excretion rates of growth hormone. Not good. Um, and all kinds of other bollocks. So using exogenous thyroid at above replacement dosages is a bad idea when using growth hormone. Unless it's for fat loss, as we mentioned earlier. For growth hormone and hypertrophy, no. Don't do it. No need. So we did have some other questions that I could quickly bang out if you want, because I know that we've been talking for quite a long time. How to test GH? Okay, I'd recommend a HPLC test. Serum growth hormone or IGF tests, I know are like the, the thing that everyone does, but I don't feel like they're reliable. Like we spoke about growth hormone molecule mutations earlier. Um, hormone activity isn't what we need to be looking at. 
that's relatively easy for anybody to achieve. Um, and growth hormone molecules that are mutated will still show hormone activity, but still cause issues. Autoimmune issues are like the most common ones. I'm sure you guys remember when everyone bought that black top hige and everyone got welts. Remember, it was on like all over UK bodybuilding boards, like UK muscle, like welts from growth hormone. And everyone says, yeah, but it's testing good. That to me is a clear sign that there was a, a mutation at, the, at those GH molecules. Wow. So hormone activity is not important. If you HPLC, you can, t you can see. Next question, how do you know if you're a good responder or not? I mean, unless you're doing some kind of biopsy and seeing how many intracellular growth hormone receptors you've got and your ability to locally stimulate IGF-1, I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest. Biological inter-individuality with every performance-enhancing drug is huge. Huge. We've all seen that person that takes 250 milligrams of tests and adds three... 100 fucking pounds or something you know um and there was people that can take grams of gear me and gain nothing yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, what was um like cal i don't know he would have been named but we know a pretty big big dude who was on like 200 i don't know who you're talking about was it 150 a week white guy and he was putting he put him in the most insane range for his testosterone in the most ridiculous super physiological range. And this guy's like one of the biggest guys we've ever seen. Yeah, even that's not a great indicator of like what can mediate hypertrophy. Um, just like, oh yeah, but obviously for him, his body just soaks it up. But like, it just yeah. So my prescribed TRT is two hundred milligrams a week, and on my last blood draw, I was at six hundred ninety nanograms per deciliter. So that's like mid-range physiological like mid to upper range on 200 and i've got clients that will take 200 and be like just under 2000 so next question was gh use post-workout and if optimal to use between meals if using surplus amounts six units or more daily so gh use post-workout as we spoke about doesn't really matter is it optimal to use between meals well yes absolutely if those meals are relatively insulin secreting if that's a term thoughts on high daily bolus as much as you can afford amount injected pre-workout for hypertrophic no i think that's an awful idea i wouldn't use a daily bolus at all i wouldn't dose it all pre-workout either mm. uh phil viz likes this i personally wouldn't recommend it from what i've said on this podcast i think i've provided reasoning why that may not be a good scenario um cycling of growth hormone should i save up enough money to blast it for 10 to 14 days to break through plateaus versus running a consistent amount monthly yeah i mean i don't in unless discussing dosage i mean 10 to 14 days of growth hormone to break through a plateau probably not a good plan i'd rather a lower dose daily if that's what they're kind of alluding to here i'm assuming his plateau he's referring to is muscle building if it's yeah like, you know you don't need to do that if it's muscle building there is there is uh i forget his name and i shouldn't because he's one of the greats of anabolic study dan duchene he used to speak about these gh blasts i don't think that there's efficacy in that for hypertrophy based on what we're talking about in terms of sealing doses and, and i think we don't need to go look over that yeah. uh two more questions here is it possible that growth hormone stops working for fat loss no desensitization does happen like we spoke about um but uh, hypertrophy self signaling pathway is not fatty acid mobilization can i still secrete growth hormone when sleeping when using growth hormone in the day as I said earlier, a single dose as low as 0.01 milligram per kilogram of body weight, completely suppressed endogenous growth hormone secretions for at least 16 hours, most of the participants up to 24 hours. So no, is the answer to that. And that is that, boys. So hopefully that was fairly comprehensive and simple. I think Luke's frozen there. It's his dodgy country boy um, Wi-Fi. The worst Wi-Fi on earth. He needs, to, he needs to upgrade. He's got a good podcast in Wi-Fi. That was um, that was really good, dude. Thanks. No, no. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that was um, not too much bollocks, and hopefully it was accurate and, and helpful to people. If people were going to go elsewhere for credible sources of information to read up some of this stuff themselves, where would you where would you point people in the direction of? I mentioned his name at the beginning, Chester Rockwell. He does some great stuff on growth hormone. Um, Dr. Scott Stevenson, who's done some amazing stuff on biological inter-individuality of growth hormone. I'd love for him to do more. I think I might ask him because he came on our podcast and did 
into the individuality between anabolics use. <laughs> Luke just texts me, I've had a power cut. You'll have to finish without me. <laughs> After those guys, I'm not, I'm not too sure. I would just recommend that most people get on to PubMed and start reading, start reading some of like the growth hormone deficient publications on there, some of the human trials and stuff. I could send over references if anybody wants. I've got loads, got like a catalogue. But probably Chester and Scott are the two people that I'd point towards that I consider to be my sort of mentors on this subject. Where can we, uh, where can we find you on socials and um, give your podcast a bit of a plug as well so people can go ahead over there and listen? Yeah, me on social. So my Facebook is just my name, Joe Jeffrey. Um, my Instagram is at Joe Jeffrey UK, and my podcast is called Optimal Physique Development. I run that with Austin Stout. We're on the podcast app. My website's jjphysique.com, and you can find all the podcasts on there. It's under this just a little tab called Podcast. That's all we use the website for now. And um, yeah, if anyone's got any questions, just drop me a, a direct message on any social media, and, and I'm happy to run for anything with anybody. Amazing. Thank you for uh, coming on, dude. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Cal, man. I really appreciate it.